Good morning, and welcome to our Circle of Friends. Just for fun today, I want to talk about sin. So, good morning, and welcome to SS, Sinners Synonymous. My name is Gary Schmidt, and I'm a sinner. This is my first meeting. What's your name? Are you a sinner too? Now, before you all turn off your feed, if there was ever a word that conjured up divisions in the faith culture, it is the word sin. The opinions range between the extremes of worm-such-as-I theology to, oops, I did something wrong, I did a naughty thing, uh, but don't worry about it. We tend to see the word sin as prescriptive. Doing something wrong or not doing something right. I once saw a mock list of dissertation topics on a bulletin board at my seminary. One of them was, is there guilt without sex? And rather than looking at sin as prescriptive, I want to suggest that our text suggests that sin is descriptive. Descriptive of the human condition rather than prescriptive about historical and current legalistic ideas of right and wrong. And so my challenging task, at least for me, this morning is to demonstrate a descriptive way of looking at sin and demonstrating how it finds expression, especially in our Old Testament text. Our Old Testament text starts with Moses. Now Moses seems to have a bipolar relationship with God. He's a manic maniac one moment and a desperate despondent to the next. And in the midst of great leadership, calling, and abilities, he constantly vacillates between pride and despair. Look at his history, and you see a leader who accomplishes a lot, and yet constantly lapses into insecurity, constantly looking for reassurance. And in our text this morning, he has just come down from Sinai with the stone tablets, only to find that the people have badgered Aaron to create a concrete God to reassure them of the divine presence. At least they were honest. They made a God out of the gold that they actually worshipped. And Moses has been away for 40 days and 40 nights. And without Moses' forceful presence, the people forgot the unseen presence of God. And perhaps for them, Moses is the incarnation of that unseen God. So when he's gone and they doubt he's returning, they create a God out of what they really value and what they can actually see. And seeing the God of gold, Moses, in anger, shatters the tablets and speaks words of judgment that result in a pride-induced slaughter of 3,000 members of the tribe by his priests, the Levites. Eventually, Moses comes down, and then in our text, he lapses into despair and throws a little tantrum before God. And amazingly, Moses now demands what the children of Israel wanted, concrete evidence of divine presence for himself. And sometimes he does seem manic, one moment displaying dictatorial leadership, but then midst insecurity lapsing into anger, then despair, and doubt about his call to lead, perhaps burnout. Hmm, been there, done that, we'll likely do it again. 
And like many of us, he is constantly looking for reassurance. Insecurity has been his Achilles heel all his life, with the short-term reassurance of the many miracles he's seen hardly lasting until the last or the next crisis. But God reminds him of promises made. In verse 2 of this chapter, God promises that God's angel will go before them into the promised land. But now in verse 12, Moses wants more specific info on who this angel is that will accompany them. God, you've told me your name, you know my name, and that your favor rests on me. But I sure don't see it. God reassures, I will go with you, and I will give you rest. But God, not good enough. Promises, promises, promises. I need concrete proof. Show me your glory. Prove it to me. Prove it to everyone else. Prove it to me now in this situation. Help us build our image as the unique people of God. Strange how a promise of inner peace does nothing to provide outer validation. This is a constant temptation in my own life and a constant refrain in my work with clients but also with clergy. We clergy often work hard to create a glittering image, and when we succeed, we are rewarded with affirmations and praise. But when we don't succeed and our fellow sheep or situation begins to bite— We lapse into despair and burnout. And when burnt-out clergy come to me for counseling, they often come in despair, thinking it is an inappropriate place to be, a prescriptive sin, rather than a descriptive challenge of being human. They know they need something. However, usually they want me to help them get back to the place of pride the place where they and others believe and support their glittering image. This place of pride is harder to recognize as part of the descriptor of sin. In our culture, we tend to affirm pride, especially if it is overlaid with learned or feigned humility. We tend to marginalize despair, especially if we are afraid that it might rub off on us. And both are part of the human condition, two sides of the same coin, the brackets in which we live as humans. And either way, there is God's promise. I will send my angel, my presence, before you. I will go with you and give you peace. But Moses persists, not good enough. Show me your glory. Literally, show me your abundance. And God gets playful now. Okay, okay, I'll do what you ask. Because I know you by name. And my favor rests on you. But if I show you my abundance, it will kill you. Totally overwhelm you. Why? Because it's without end. It is infinite. And you are finite. But that's another sermon. Tell you what, God says. I'll show you my goodness. Well, actually, I'll let my goodness pass by, and you will know my name as well. This is a reciprocal intimacy. I'll show you more of myself than anyone should see. 
And now here the text gets tricky, perhaps a little playful and laughable, maybe even naughty. Now, of course, in our sanitized translation, this is lost. See, it says, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, my abundance, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Now, surprisingly, the King James Version comes closest to the original here. It says, I will show you my back parts. And here we come to something my Old Testament professor told us we should likely not preach. He suggests that God mooned Moses. He playfully showed him the backside of his presence. Why? Because teasingly, almost in a peekaboo fashion, God knew that if Moses, if he could make Moses laugh, Moses would be able to see more of him and not be overwhelmed. Humor does that. Helps us not be overwhelmed with our own seriousness. However, if you're going to preach this text, my Old Testament professor suggested, explain that God's presence is often much easier to see in hindsight. And that too is true. When I look back over my life, including some very exciting times and very difficult times, it is often easier to see God's presence when, than when I look at the present or the future. And if Moses and us only look back over the panorama of our lives, what a God-filled life it was. And somehow, when we, do, when we do that, there is a reassuring presence that enters our present, inviting us to trust and obey, for there's no other way. Now, trust for us humans always lives in the space between pride and despair. And so sin isn't so much a prescription of what you have done as a description of human life. The theologian Richard Niebuhr describes sin as pride. Soren Kierkegaard suggested that sin is also despair. And I want to suggest a definition that says sin is both that they are two sides of the same coin. They are the brackets in which we experience life. They are a description of what it means to be human. We all project a certain image. It's our constructed self. The clothing we wear, our job, our status, our looks, our possessions, our economic standing, our education, our neighborhood, our religious life, our politics, our culture, and our church. And we put it on display. And whenever others affirm our constructed self, we will be tempted by pride as a point of comparison. And when others don't affirm or criticize our constructed self, we will be tempted by despair, again, as a point of comparison. This is the human condition. This is our natural tendency. For us, this seems a given, and it is this given that is, a descriptive, that is descriptive of our humanity, our sin. Why? Well, it's a false given that we have constructed. 
What do we mean by the givens? The dictionary definitions suggest that it, the givens are ultimate reality. They're a certainty. They just are. Richard Rohr describes givens as everything that God has created. And he suggests that we spend 98% of our time and energy and focus on the things that we have created and how to maintain them, how to get more of them, and find ways to display them. But we spend very little conscious time on the things that God has created, the givens, like everything. And when people affirm the image we've created, we are tempted with pride. And when they ignore or criticize what we've created, we are tempted with despair. The spiritual life, he suggests, is a life focused on what God has created, recognizing that anything we create is created from the givens, the things that God has created. This is also what Jesus is talking about in our New Testament text. Teasingly, he says, give to God what is God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's obvious. They are not interchangeable, and they are not negotiable. This is much more than just a statement of separation of church and state. This recognition is the pathway of humility and peace. God has created all that is, everything visible and invisible, the universe, but also the fruits of the Spirit, infinite things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God smiles and says, go about creating in the world, but know that everything you create is created from my givens, capital G, given as a gift of my presence and peace. I know your name, and I will go with you. That's a given. Even when your temptations of pride and despair make me hard to see. But in hindsight... You will see me and smile. Sometimes God just cracks me up. And so Moses went on. No tangible confidence booster. <clears throat> no stroking of his ego. No assurance of Moses' own value or, ability, or abilities is given. Only the promise, the given. I will be with you and I will give you rest. Moses, like us, continues to live in the brackets of pride and despair, a description of his natural human tendency, yet always comes home to himself in God, a place where the divine presence was with him and gave him rest. I close with a prayer written by the theologian Walter Brueggemann in his new book, Virus as a Summons to Faith. Please pray with me. You, holy, faithful, merciful God, have called us into being, given us names, faces, and vocations, and will live them out in freedom. In our freedom, we notice only sometimes that we cannot cope with all that comes at us. We cannot finally outflank the forces that address us. And we cannot by ourselves deal with the grief, trouble, and anger that well up in us. 
after our imagined autonomy, we gladly turn back to you, after we have said I for a very long time, we fall back to thou. We utter thou who inhabits our memories, memories of rescue, healing, and forgiveness. We utter the thou who occupies our best hopes as we hope for peace, well-being, and justice in the world. We move back into faithful dialogue with you. We say thou as we thank and praise you. We say I as we act out our freedom and accept our responsibility. So Jesus, just now in the face of the virus, we, found our, we find our best I without force and we say thou. Thou in power, thou in mercy, thou in faithfulness. Finally, thou. We remember all your wonders and then thank in gladness. We remember who we are as yours, and we recover our gratitude, our hope, our resolve, and our confidence. Amen.